0: hello everyone and welcome to shot reverse shot a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode my name is edwin davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology it's matt risby hi matt how's it going
1: Hey, man. Um, I'm doing good. Um, I'm uh, glowing currently, um, which is a a marked change to to last week's uh, kind of frostbite (laughs) antics. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm glowing because I've just infected a new person with my favourite movie of all time. Um, I have uh, just showed my uh, very suspicious brother-in-law, Midnight Run, Mm. and he absolutely fucking loved it despite being like, I just thought he would, because obviously if you don't like it, then there's got to be something like clearly wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he kind of went for it in a way that I didn't think he would. And it was kind of um, really lovely to see. And it always gives me a warm feeling, you know, when you, you say to someone, oh, this is my favourite movie, you're under a lot of pressure and you find yourself sat in a room and maybe laughing a little bit more than you would normally mm. <laughs> when there's something funny comes up just to kind of see if it catches on. But uh, yeah, he really went for it. And that's a nice feeling to to have, to kind of uh, uh, share something with someone and they like it. It's crushing when they don't like it, hate it.
0: Mm, I I don't know if I've... I think I may have talked about this on the podcast before, but one of my favourite things for a little while was I really enjoyed showing new people the mist. Mm -hmm. Because... What's wrong with you, Ed? Because I just loved seeing the look of horror on their faces as you get to the ending. Mm -hmm. Because... And seeing the shift from, oh, we're all having fun watching this goofy horror movie to, oh, God, everything's awful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is that how Uh, you separate your friends, like, the wheat from the chaff?
0: Yeah, anyone who, like, laughs at the end, I'm like, I'm sorry, we can't hang out anymore. You are clearly a sociopath. Um, Yeah but but it was it is kind of like it doesn't really give you a warm feeling but it certainly gives you a sense of pride in knowing that you thoroughly ruined someone's evening <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh also
1: uh reminded me and me and my wife have uh a laugh about this quite often is that um you'd, you don't know this ed me and my wife came very close to walking down the aisle to the midnight Run theme by danny elfman and wow. th- the reason we didn't do it and the reason we didn't do it is because... So we eloped and we got married on our own. No one else was, like, invited to the ceremony. We just went off and had our own thing. And, like, y- you pay for the ceremony and it's, like, like 30 quid or something. But then they're like, do you want an enhanced ceremony? And we were like, what's that? And they were like, well, you get to choose the music you have to go down and, and you get to, like, change a couple of the bits of the readings in the order of the, of, of the kind of vows and stuff that they do or whatever. And we were like, okay, we're interested. But it was, like, twice the price So we were like, we'd always said we were going to walk down the aisle to the midnight run theme tune. But then we were like, is that worth (laughs) 35 quid for like a moment that no one else will see? It will be just ours. And ultimately we decided that we wouldn't do it. Right. So, um, we arrive. So like fast forward six months and we arrive in the registry office in Whitby where we got married. And they give you like a little pre-game talk, like the registrar takes you in and talks you through like what's going to happen, checks your identity, make sure you are who you said you are, et cetera, et cetera. Now, she said, oh, you, we can see that you've chosen the non-enhanced ceremony, which is a little backhanded compliment way of saying <laughs> you're fucking skin flints, right? <laughs> she was like, just so you know, because you, ha- you haven't paid for it. We're just going to pipe in kind of just just generic classical music. So we were like, All right, yeah, okay, cool. There's not really anything we can do about it now. That's just going to happen. So we go through the talks with her, and then she says, well, just give you a shout, and you, you just walk in. The music will be playing, and everyone will be in there. When she said everyone, she means no one because we didn't invite anyone. It was an empty room. The only people there were two goths because it's Whitby because uh, we picked our witnesses off the street, like just strangers. They were just two goths who were hanging around outside our hotel. They were our witnesses for the day. So we are kind of getting ready. It's, like it's a big moment. I'm about to get married. And we step into the registry office and start walking down the aisle and we can hear this generic classical music that's playing. And it's we're like, "Hmm, this this kind of sounds a bit familiar. And then we look at each other and realise that they're playing the Lord of the Rings theme tune (laughs) as we walk down the aisle, which is not a problem per se because, you know, it's all right, but it's not like the rousing kind of like big fellowship theme. It's, you know, the Hobbiton music, you know, the kind of diddled it. Do, 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 that kind of music. And then we kind of get halfway down and realise, thinking, do these Goths think that we're going to enter the room <laughs> <laughs> like dressed as Frodo and Arwen or something? Do you know what <laughs> I mean? Like what, like, what must they be thinking? They've just been like... Like kind of sequestered from their general like day to day goth, but I don't know what goths do in, in the daytime. But yeah, just kind of asked to come to this wedding of like two kind of like Tolkien freaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, we got to see it and, we, and we were we were falling about laughing Ed and the registrar couldn't quite understand why because she thought it was just generic classical music. But ultimately, <laughs> I got married to the Lord of the Rings team, and they played the exact same thing as we went out and I, we were like, this is weird. But yeah, you know, it'll be a good story for a podcast one day.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's like eighty percent of my experiences now. It's just kind of think, well. This was terrible, but at least it's good fodder for the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll uh, get on to the new segment of the show now, which is uh, as usual in some way reflective of the uh, the current roiling uh, discussion of sexual assault in every element of American life and in media. But uh, this week there was a kind of a positive development in that it was announced that there's going to be a commission on the culture and atmosphere of sexual harassment in hollywood which is going to be headed up by anita hill for people who are unfamiliar any millennials listening i mean technically i'm a millennial but any of the younger millennials i guess listening uh anita hill was a lawyer and an academic who in the early 90s testified to the senate uh, in the confirmation hearings for clarence thomas about his Uh, about her experiences working for him and being sexually harassed by him, which was kind of a watershed moment for discussions of sexual harassment and assault in the early 90s. You know, you you have this whole thing where people said 1992 was going to be the year of the woman as a result of that, of women kind of like seeing the way in which her experiences were essentially discounted by all of these very powerful men in the Senate uh, who, you know, confirmed Thomas to the Supreme Court where he sits to this day. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's part of me which is like, oh, great, a commission that's going to solve everything. Because, you know, certainly th- I think that's very a very British mindset because there's like, I think even the thick of it has a joke about how, you know, you just call a commission to get people to stop talking about a problem. But mm-hmm. it, it it does seem to me a confirmation of how the fact that this story hasn't gone away, which was very much the concern when people started coming forward and talking about Harvey Weinstein you know months and months ago now that you know this would be just one of those things that blows over and the fact that it hasn't and the fact that people that stories keep coming out we start learning more details about Weinstein in particular but about you know people across the the entertainment industry the fact that this commission exists now i think for me yeah, strikes me as a, a, a positive step in hopefully Trying to curb this sort of stuff happening in the future.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it depends what their objectives are, what they mm-hmm. what they actually sit down and and uh, kind of think the aims of the commission. Obviously, oh, is there sexual assault and and harassment that's widespread in Hollywood? Yes, of course there is. They can't mm-hmm. legally push anything through from it, so it it needs to be almost like like a truth and reconciliation council. That you have after like some horrendous kind of war crimes, that you everyone gets to have their say on record. Um, mm. It becomes it becomes like solid history. It doesn't yeah. just become things that were talked about or rumored about, or oh, this news story that was in the week and blew over and, and disappeared, and now we kind of don't know about it. And most of the people who were responsible are kind of still working. This is a is a uh, a, a commission to essentially bring together if this is their aim bring together all of these stories under one kind of codified document that you could then produce and say there you go there's tangible kind of evidence that this happened did happen and these are the effects of it and when you've got something like that that is solid and and kind of doesn't go away as quickly as a story in a news cycle then you've got some kind of basis and some kind of launching pad uh, for making lasting change,
0: yeah, and, and I think that would be the, I mean, the best outcome of all this is that Harvey Weinstein gets thrown into prison until he dies. But uh, you know, I'm not sure how likely that is to happen at this point, mm. even in his in his weakened state, uh, or or that you know every sexual harasser in Hollywood just gets turfed out on the rear, which again, you know, it's not clear how uh, a lot of them have been which has been nice to see. But, you know, the the chance of rooting it out, every single one of them out, you know, is is a big task. But the idea that it could, could provide a focal point for uh women and men, but, you know, primarily women, to come forward and say, you know, this happened to me, this is my story, and be able to get the word out there and to, like you say, just kind of have it stand as as kind of a totem mm-hmm. of saying this thing happened, this is something that we have to try to stop in some way. You know, we have to, we know this is a problem, you know, we need to do something about it.
1: Mm, yeah, and hoping that, like, it's made a big fuss of, mm. that it's not just something that happens in the background, that it, is, it becomes a thing that people talk about and it being important as a as a watershed moment because it kind of has to be. mm. Yeah. Otherwise um, what's the fucking point?
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh you I think the fact that this has, you know, you can say that the the whole me too movement, you know, this week in a kind of a, a, a tangential way led to Roy Moore not being elected a senator from Alabama or, you know, people in Congress having to step down, the fact that we are seeing these things have an impact, you know, in every sphere where it's been detected. Uh, you have to hope that that means that people are going to start taking this seriously. That people in power are like, oh shit, all that stuff we did and thought there would be no consequences for is now having real fucking consequences, and that this can form kind of part of the grander mosaic of, of all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And kind of a follow up to a story from last week, you know, we talked about the possibility of a merger between Disney and Fox or Disney buying off certain parts of 20th century fox obviously they don't own fox news uh which is a shame because that'd be great to see if they just like mm. like mm, yeah let's just buy this and then just shoot it into the sun but no mm. they are they're bought off the television and film or they they intend to buy off the film and television parts of fox entertainment and you know this has been greeted with you know on the one hand, as we talked about, people being like, oh my God, yay, all of these Marvel properties are going to be under the one roof, and a lot of other people being like, yeah, conglomeration of media is really fucking bad, and this could be really, really terrible. But uh, the fact that it now is a step closer to happening, obviously there's a long way to go. It needs to go through uh, regulation, and you know, people need to kind of examine the deal, and you know, things need to be finalised, money needs to change hands, but you know, there there is this kind of sense that it's all a fait accompli at this point. Uh, the fact that we are now staring down the possibility that, you know, Disney could just shut down the Fox channel and just put all of it under, you know, on ABC or whatever, which I don't know if that's going to happen, but they have also said that five to 10,000 people are going to lose their jobs as part of this merger. And that seems like the amount of people that would lose their jobs if you were shutting down an entire TV network. Um, or, you know, the question of, what does it mean for a movie studio to basically put out twenty-six films a year, uh, as is going to happen next year, as because that's the combined total that Disney and Fox are putting out? Uh, you know, there's a lot of big questions about the entire future of of media uh, thrown up as a, as a result of this.
1: Mm, yeah, I, I I I do love the fact. Well, I mean, I love it kind of it's terrifying but like you've essentially got a deal done this week to mean that in 10 years time we could sit looking at an idea where all output is 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 essentially some property of two or three companies in the entire Mm. world and the we will look back in history and we'll see that there was barely a murmur beyond if you boil it down people being excited about cameos in a movie
0: yeah and i think it also one of the ways in which it's not really being framed but which this is entirely what it's about is the continued impact of like streaming and mm-hmm. the impact of netflix on the film and television industry in general because what you're essentially seeing is disney looking at what netflix have done in terms of you know eating into the amount of money you get from theatrical movies and the way in which they have like devalued you know the uh the the libraries of studios which used to be kind of like a bountiful supply that's the but that's like the thing that studios used to survive on was like even if their contemporary product wasn't great they could still make a huge amount of money from selling their libraries and renting or or licensing their, their libraries out and that mm-hmm. kind of doesn't happen as much anymore because of of Netflix you know you can see Disney here looking 10, like say ten years into the future, and thinking we need to own as many properties as possible to put on our streaming service, like we need to put the Simpsons onto this the Disney app, and keep it away from Netflix, and keep as many of these shows for ourselves. And this seems to be uh, an escalation in the the battle over what the future of entertainment looks like.
1: Yeah, it looks pretty fucking weird and depressing mm-hmm. that we will be. Yeah. I mean, I, it will cut down the amount of subscriptions I have. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, if I just have to pay one huge mega corp
0: um, <laughs> for all of my uh, um, uh, entertainment in, input. Yeah. And it does bring us one step closer to that thing in, I think Todd Vanderwerf pointed this out, how in Cloud Atlas, they, in the kind of far dystopian future not the one with tom hanks but like the the previous one uh mm. where they're talking about they don't refer to movies as movies they refer to them as disney's mm. <laughs> and this seems like the first step on that journey yeah
1: i think i would have probably taken that kind of point on as a bit more salient if there wasn't so much yellow face going on mm. yeah which was deeply problematic i mean the, the cloud atlas is a film which has stuck with me ever since I watched it. I'm not even a big fan. I, I I wasn't a big fan of the book, and I wasn't a big fan of any of the Wyskowski's like previous movies, particularly. But that's a film I can't quite shake because it's just too weird to be truly terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is Yellow Face yeah. in it, and there's a, there's yeah. a lot of kind of very questionable casting decisions there. And I kind of understand what they're trying to do, but like there's some very questionable things they pull off there.
0: Yeah, I mean it's preferable to. I don't know if you ever saw the Woody Allen movie Magic in the Moonlight.
1: I did not see that. Is that the one which is about the top loader song?
0: <laughs> no, it's oh, um, it's, a shame. it's Colin Thurf plays a magician who is brought in to investigate whether or not and like a like um, Houdini, he's like someone who debunks fraudsters. He's brought in to investigate whether Emma Stone is kind of a fake psychic, and the opening scene of that movie is him performing entirely in yellowface as part of his act, and Whoa. it was really jarring to me, but also really funny because it reminded me of an episode of Comedy Bang Bang where they have Tim Heidecker on and he talks about how he wanted he had just recently starred in a completely fictional Woody Allen movie called Ching Chong Matinee, <laughs> <laughs> and God. then he starts talking about the details of it. I was like. Does Woody Allen listen to Comedy Bang Bang? Because it seems really close to what Tim Hydeck was describing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think Woody Allen listens to a lot of things. Um, (laughs) um, I think he is pretty much unaware of the entire world's thoughts on him.
0: Well, you'd have to be, really, to have not killed yourself. Yeah, and just to plough
1: on as if nothing is wrong. Yeah,
0: yeah. But enough about possible sex offenders. Alleged sex offenders, probable sex offenders, I think it probably <laughs> <Probable>. is. <this point.
1: laughs> yeah, probables. That, that sounds about right. That covers um, us. <laughs> uh,
0: before we get on to our main topic of discussion, uh, I want to just kind of congratulate myself on accidentally being spot on about something. A few weeks ago, we were talking about the end of Every Frame of Painting, the great kind of video essay series, and I basically, with no evidence whatsoever supported, <laughs> surmised. That the reason why the score for Thor Ragnarok was so good was that you know someone must have seen the Every Frame of Painting video about how good the score for Thor for how badly the scores for Marvel are handled, uh, and said, hey, we should probably not do that. And then there was an interview this week with Mark Mothersbaugh, who wrote the score to Thor Ragnarok, who said exactly exa- essentially the same thing. Basically said, yeah, we saw that and decided that we should try and avoid doing that as much as possible. So uh, points for me for being surprisingly intuitive.
1: Mm. And I'd just like to point out as well, our listeners, there's just so many times where we make wild claims on this show, and we are wrong, <laughs> and you, we'll never mention it again. And yep. then Ed will carefully go back and delete them from the archives.
0: Yeah, this is uh, very much the special edition of Shot Reverse Shot. Every previous episode, I've been tinkering with and removing any instance of us being entirely wrong. So you can't find it. We've been right on every single critical social issue of the last six years. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's one you know, of those guys who, like when there's... Uh, like an Oscar race or something. They'll in January the year before they'll say they'll <laughs> type like fifty tweets that say, "Oh, I can't believe Leonardo DiCaprio won the Oscar." I can't believe, um, you know, whatever, whatever. And then, and then they just go back and delete them all when the actual thing happens. And they're like, mm-hmm. "What? Well, I called it a year ago." That's <laughs> us, but not as clever.
0: Yep, total
1: scumbags. Yeah.
0: So, uh, speaking of special editions, yay segue. Yep, managed to kind of stumble into one. I liked it. <laughs> thank you someone did thankfully mm. uh we're going to talk about this week the latest star war which is the last jedi the mm. eighth film in the main series but the ninth if you include rogue one but also like the 12th if you also include the ewok adventure the droids one and that pilot for the clone wars tv series uh, people oh, who... yeah i think that's yeah. actually
1: official isn't it the clone wars. yes Movie and that's really terrible.
0: Yeah, I think anyone who like claims that Disney are like oversaturating, like they are in the sense that they are putting out a movie every year, but they're not really exploiting Star Wars any more than Lucas was. They're just a little better at it. Yeah, it's the eighth film in the kind of the main canonical run, which would be the the saga of the Skywalker family, begun of course in 1977 with Star Wars, continued through the original trilogy, the prequels, and now the new Disney uh the trilogy which was inaugurated two years ago by JJ Abrams, a movie that did fairly well uh mm. with the Force the Force Awakens. Uh people seem to like it. hmm It was very, very popular. It earned a huge amount of money, like a staggering amount of money. It opened huge and then just continued uh in a way that movies aren't meant to. Earning close to a billion dollars in the US alone. Uh and then earning like two billion worldwide. The sequel, uh, Abrams is a producer, but is more or less hands off. And it was written and directed by Ryan Johnson, who is a long-term favorite of this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrote and directed the movies *Brick*, uh, *Brothers Bloom*, and *And Looper*, and you know directed some great episodes of television, including *Ozymandias*. The anti-penultimate episode of breaking bad which for a time and probably still is was the highest rated episode of all of television ever made on mm-hmm. imdb uh, and he has stepped into the director's chair on this film, continuing the story that abram started but taking it in directions that i think uh, are unexpected and that has certainly caused a lot of commentary online before we delve into a discussion of the movie's plot and i should say this because i always forget there will be spoilers for oh, people God. we are a lot we are going to be talking about a lot of things that happened in this movie, so please, for the love of God, don't listen to it if you have not seen the movie. That would be sheer insanity. Let's let's say you know, kind of get some initial thoughts. Matt, how what did you think about the movie? Okay, well, uh, okay, this this is
1: going to go on a little bit. Mm-hmm. I warn you now. Okay, so the day, the two days before we went to see the Last Jedi, me me and my geek group who kind of hang around and play board games all together and it was just general nerds like essentially the AV club of uh, of Sheffield. We uh, decided that to mark, we were so hyped for The Last Jedi that we would watch all of the Star Wars movies in the two days preceding it. We'd kind of, we all booked time off work and like we kind of did a big thing. We got snacks. We ordered Lebanese food. It was a whole thing, right? So we watched uh, all five Star Wars movies. I just correct you, Ed. You'll probably have to go and edit this out. But there are only actually five Star Wars movies. There's okay uh, Star Wars Empire, Return of the Jedi. There's the prequels, which at this point is just Rogue One, and uh, then there's the Force Awakens, aforementioned. Um, so we watched all of those and then we kind of timed it so we'd finished Force Awakens kind of mid-afternoon then we headed down to the cinema and we watched The Last Jedi with the tickets that I bought nearly 3 months ago ed um <laughs> because we are that cool right so we sit down and watch the movie then the movie finishes and my wife turns to me and says cuz she joined, she wasn't involved in any of that
0: <laughs> that mm-hmm.
1: stupidity beforehand she just turned up for the for the screening she she wasn't into any of any of that like kind of uh, like lunacy um, and she says, uh, what did you think? And I turned to her and I said, oh, that didn't do it for me at mm. all. And, like, I was, I was shook, Ed. I was totally, totally shook. And I was also pretty bummed out because we got outside the cinema and, like, everyone else was, oh, what did you think of that? And I was like, "Ah, oh, God, I, I really didn't feel that at all. And I mm-hmm. just felt really shitty because it kind of everyone else kind of did. And I was like... Ah, oh, yeah yeah I think I want to go home <laughs> and I went home and I cried into my Jar Jar Binks pillow <laughs> uh, I don't did, I have one of those um, I don't know who that is so yeah I went home and I was, I was just I was just really bummed out
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I was like why is that why am I bummed out by this and then I spent the best part of two days just kind of mulling everything over and I kept thinking about the movie and I was like well this is a good sign surely because I can't stop thinking about the film and thinking about what I thought worked, and I couldn't mm-hmm. stop thinking about those parts, and thinking about the stuff that didn't work, and then I realised that I kind of just had this revelation that, right, essentially, I've just been to see a film. What did I want? Right. Now, The Force Awakens has its critics that it is a film that kind of really, really plays to the to the to the crowd, and you know, retreads a lot of. The tropes and the things that we expect from a star wars movie and to be fair to it it does it very very well and makes it a, you know it's a very watchable hugely exciting movie and it's a fucking star wars film it feels like a star wars film because it is practically a remake of the most famous one and it, it delivers everything that a fan could want who had been you know like 30 years have waiting for something like that to come out but what did i want from the last jedi I came out thinking like did I want and like a remake of Empire Strikes Back did I want more Star Warsy stuff did it, like how tiresome is that going to get hmm. and then I realized the last Jedi is actually really good right but yeah. what it did was it said to me as a person like dude fucking let go of Star Wars Because Mm. if you don't, you're going to be coming back to the cinema every year to be spoon-fed, you like Star Wars, have Star Wars, and it's not beneficial (laughs) to good Mm -hmm. movies. The Last Jedi is not unreservedly an excellent movie, but it is a challenging Star Wars movie. And the more I think about it and the more uh, I mull over what happened and think about the creative decisions that were made the more, I think, Ryan Johnson 100% knows that, and Lucasfilm know it, and Disney know it, that they were like, right, if we're going to have people coming back to Star Wars over and over again, for years to come, they're going to get fucking tired of this. Even if we deliver really good watchable movies like The Force Awakens every two years, this is just going to get old. So do you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm going to take this universe to some really weird places, and some of those places were amazing, like some of the best stuff I've ever seen in a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. And some of those things did not really work at all. But um, like overall it is a film that I walked out of the cinema thinking that's a disappointing three star movie, and now I'm thinking, it might just be the best Star Wars movie.
0: Yeah, that was my thinking coming out of it, that it was it certainly featured my single favourite moment in any Star Wars movie, maybe two of them. Mm-hmm. Um uh, which we'll, we'll probably talk about in more detail in a moment, but like I walked away from it thinking that, you know, it's obviously only one viewing and I've seen all the other movies like countless times. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Rogue One and The Force Awakens, I can count because they, they've they only existed for like two years, but like literally the original trilogy, when I was a kid, there was one summer where I just watched the entire trilogy every day for a summer. Uh, I was very much an indoor child. Uh, mm-hmm. It has to be said. Um, didn't help that I lived in rural Leicestershire and had hay fever. So there's not there's not a huge amount you can do when there's pollen everywhere. Mm, but options limited. Yeah, so so obviously this is only a first viewing, but I walked down and I think that may be my favourite of the Star Wars movies. It may, it's certainly, I think, the best made from an aesthetic point of view. Mm. And I think you're totally right that the the subtext and text of the movie are basically saying you need to let go of these things like like when yoda a puppet again which is nice uh because uh boy did i get sick of cgi yoda mm-hmm. <laughs> over the course of the the prequels that don't exist um but like he basically shows up and says to luke you know this old way of thinking this old way that the jedi have existed needs to end and and he like destroys the entire collected volumes of the jedi knowledge and essentially says to him you know Ray already knows all the stuff she needs to know. She needs. She just has to go out and kind of apply it, and that to me feels like what the movie is doing on a meta level. Like, Ryan Johnson is going in saying, "Okay, I have all of the accoutrements of a Star Wars movie. I know how these things work. I'm going to play around in the sandbox and try and do something that you've never seen in a Star Wars movie. And I'm going to take and it's even a repu- in some ways a repudiation of the previous movie." <laughs> Mm. which is what was really exciting to me. The fact that the whole move, previous movie, the big thing was like, who's Rey's parents? Or like, ooh, what's, all, what's the deal with Snoke? And this one is like, you find out that her parents are no one important at all, <laughs> which I think is, is brilliant and bold and a wonderful choice. Mm-hmm. And the only satisfying answer to that question, mm-hmm. because if it was just, oh yeah, like she's, she's like a secret child that luke had or that she's kylo ren's sister or whatever it would have been just like well then a lot of the previous movie doesn't make sense if that's the case Mm -hmm. but also it's just nice to kind of be like acknowledging oh yeah this story takes place in a huge universe you can Mm -hmm. have characters that aren't connected to this like tiny handful who have been the focal point for 40 years of storytelling but then also like snoke being killed halfway through in i think one of the best moment best ways possible mm-hmm. um and reframe in order to reframe the trilogy as entirely about the rise and possible redemption of kylo ren was i thought some really smart filmmaking and i'm glad that i went in with you know some expectations of what it was going to be but came away thinking oh like This was not entirely what I wanted it. This was not entirely what I expected it to be at all. Mm.
1: And I think that's what I took about two days to come to terms with. Mm -hmm. That, like, I, as a Star Wars fan... Because this is what The Last Jedi did. It made me reassess myself as a Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. And it made me reassess what I wanted from the trilogy. It made me reassess what I expected from the Star Wars trilogy. And... I really should be pushing for the films to be different, original, unique and exciting mm-hmm. and and you know each film to break the mold. Yeah. I shouldn't be pushing for just the same kind of feels all the time. And mm. I think this is like completely amplified by the fact that I watched five Star Wars movies <laughs> in the 20s, like the 36 hours preceding seeing this film. Is that like, I'll be like, oh, okay, I've had that, I've had that, I've had that. Here's, so I want some more. And then all of a sudden, I'm sat down facing The Last Jedi, which is 100% not that. And it's deliberately so. And I kind of came up with this analogy it's going to be tortured. dead. So, okay. you know, you'll strap yourself in.
0: It's the best kind.
1: But like, imagine Star Wars is like your favorite band. Mm-hmm. Who had like a string of great albums, but they they went away and they they went off and did their own solo projects for like thirty years, and you never thought they'd get back together, and they did, and they got back together for like this reunion, this concert that they did for one night only, and there was a few new band members, but they played the hits and they played them the way that, that they were fresh and like they they it sounded like they'd be given a, like a fresh lick of paint, and the you know they had everything about the band that you loved. Uh, and they were back together. And it was great. And that was The Force Awakens. Then they announced that they're going to stay together and they're going to record and they're going to go into the studio and you're really excited. But what comes out two years later is a really weird electro digipop album. <laughs> and like most of the, like, the the hardcore fans are like, well, this isn't the band I fell in love with. But then you're like, oh, man, well, how shit would it have been if they'd have just played like music in the same exact style they used to that would have been so fucking boring and that is what i've brought out of the last jedi it has made me completely reassess my um relationship with star wars which is Mm. not what i thought i thought i was going to go and see a film and i was going to be thoroughly entertained and that would be it and it would be a film that i'd grow to love i did not expect to be challenged Mm. and the my disappointment that i felt as the, the the kind of the credits rolled was partly about some of the things in the film that I still don't think worked, um, but but mainly because I was just really really surprised at what I just sat through.
0: Yeah, I I certainly felt like there were, there were lots of moments in it that were really crowd pleasing for me and kind of thought, like, okay, this is recapturing a lot of the feeling of the Last Jedi. Well, of, uh, sorry, of the Force Awakens, where you know like the opening the opening sequence of Poe Dameron, you know, being you know one hell of a pilot to mm-hmm. uh, quote Finn uh, you know, flying around destroying all of the turrets on a on a dreadnought and then, you know, the bombers come in and the, there's this kind of like really exciting, tense emotional action sequence in which this character that you've never met before kind of struggles to kind of accomplish this mission and then dies and you know you have this kind of like real kind of like push and pull someone compared it uh, i saw on online to the opening 15 minutes of up but in space and with a battle i kind Mm. of think that kind of makes sense that there's a character that we've never met before that we never hear her say a single word but her death kind of casts this huge shadow over the rest of the movie (laughs) and it ends up being kind of really emotional but then there were also moments in it that I could really tell people were like, "Whoa, this is this is doing something really different." The, the key one for me, and I I, I kind of alluded it to it earlier, the moment when Vice Admiral Holdo, who played by Laura Dern, who like, my God, <laughs> I loved Laura Dern so much, and it's so great seeing her get kind of such a central role in this huge movie like this. Mm-hmm. When she uh, turns the kind of the the, the resistance cruiser around and then goes into hyperspace facing the imperial ships and goes into hyperspace and then because of that she destroys all of these ships and the way in which that is illustrated is through a series of like one second long monochrome images of just like slashes through all these ships and it's basically just like some real like anime shit and I say that in the best possible terms. It really is just like, my God, this is like the, the visual language that you haven't seen in a Star Wars movie ever. And then suddenly and when that happened and you know there's no sound on the, the, the soundtrack, it's just a series of still images, it was like the the, the entire theatre was just so deadly quiet and it was there's just this sense of I could feel this sense of awe coming off of the entire audience of just being like, What the hell did we just see? That was mm. that was crazy and amazing, and I wasn't, and I'm glad, you know, I, that um, was one of the moments that made me think this movie is trying something very different to what the Force Awakens was trying to do. It's not just like going, okay, here's all the familiar Star Wars elements. Let's kind of remix them and play around with them. This one is very much saying, okay, f- that that's a fine way of doing it, but you need to bring in, you know, if you have a different director, that director's going to bring in different points of reference, they're gonna bring in different influences. And the fact that this movie features like a very clear homage to a scene from the nineteen twenty-seven silent movie Wings mm. uh is is an indication that it's perhaps not working on the pure popcorn level that the Force Awakens was.
1: Yeah, that I can I can confirm and I've heard quite a few other people have the exact same reaction to it. The bit where the the resistance cruiser goes through the the, um, the 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 kind of re- the uh, empire's fleet empire mm. sorry the uh, first order in hyperspace was played to complete pin dropping silence mm. um, in in the screen the patch screen that I was in everyone was just kind of blown away by that and that's like stylistically like you talk about the the, the opening sequence like if you broke that down like it's really obvious the 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 grammar of of the previous Star Wars movies is out of the window there's shots in yeah. that that feel like they'll come out of like a hitchcock movie or something the one specifically that i'm thinking is when um the 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 bombardier in 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 the bomber is like laying down and you see all the drop bombs falling behind her but we see it as a close-up of her eye mm-hmm. and everything falls behind her it's like that kind of filmmaking hasn't existed in mm-hmm. star wars um it certainly didn't exist in some of the the early like kind of Star Wars movies, are shot very kind of formally, they're kind of very kind of rigidly presented, and this is this is something kind of like the Force Awakens introduced like some more dynamism to it. Yeah. this took it to a whole new level, and I think it's yeah, it's definitely the best made uh, Star Wars movie. Um, I think it might be the best designed Star Wars movie. Like yes. some of the production design. Um, I mean, it's one of the high points of the movie, but the the uh, scene in um, Snoke's throne room, mm-hmm. um, which appears to be a kind of a combination of uh, leftover kind of like uh, Vincent Minnelli set um, <laughs> and something from like a Kurosawa film and it's just kind of yeah. just pure red that it, it's not explained at all like mm. you know the emperor's throne room in the jedi is a throne with like some windows where you can watch like some shit happening out of a star wars window and there's like pipes and computers and stuff this is just a giant red room mm-hmm. uh with some guards in it i mean that scene is amazing that action scene is incredible um but the design of it is it's so unique and like when you i think when we saw the trailer i was like okay this is the second film of the trilogy. It's going to get dark. Oh, here's someone who is a fledgling Jedi being trained by a Jedi master. Oh, here is some walkers being attacked by speeders. I was like, okay, they're hitting the notes of Empire Strikes Back, but all of that shit is totally misleading. And yeah. I really, really like the fact that nothing that I expected came out in every single way.
0: Yeah, I think that's especially true, like you say, in the, the whole training sequence uh segment of the film where between ray and luke where the whole you know if if you're talking about the first one being like a remake or pseudo remake of a new hope this is like an inversion or an explosion of return of, of empire strikes back where they mm-hmm. are saying okay this is the element you remember like luke finds yoda but he doesn't know who he is and he's he, he kind of like trains him kind of playfully and he's like okay yeah i'll I'll teach you how to do this stuff he has some anxiety about training him because he's too old or whatever but he gets talked around to it and this one is just like luke has no interest in training her he's like no i need to cut myself off from the force i made a mistake a terrible terrible mistake years ago in training kylo ren and and i've brought all this horror upon the universe i've cut myself off from the world i came here to die Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and you know i have i i just don't want to do anything and then kind of being brought round to it and then kind of realising that his mistake, you know, which brought on all of this kind of terrible things was compounded by the fact that he did cut himself off from the world. Things have gotten much worse because he, you know, has exiled himself and, you know, it's not the idea of giving the mentor of this kind of very classically composed story, this almost kind of Greek tragic backstory where you know he had this moment of weakness where he thought about killing kylo ren that but then he it kind of went away but then kylo saw him and thought oh he's gonna kill me and then that's kind of sends the that basically is the inciting incident for this entire new trilogy Mm -hmm. you know instead of it just being in empire strikes back where yoda's an old jedi who's just kind of run off to a swamp this one is like really about exploring the interiority of what it means to be someone who has decided to cut themselves off from the world. Mm, and cut themselves off from the Force as well. Mm. Like,
1: we know that when someone dies in Star Wars, you can feel it if you've got the Force. Uh, mm-hmm. You see Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, you know, when Alderaan is destroyed and, and Leia more recently when Han dies, that that Luke has literally turned his back on the entire world and the entire galaxy, and he doesn't know anything. And yeah. he has just been slowly like you say waiting to die and in a way you know the the end of the movie does get his kind of redemption um um but yeah it's it's really interesting that like one of the key bits of dialogue from the trailer and the film is um and this will just kind of wrap up how I, i kind of feel about it um before we actually talk about the specifics of the film itself is when Kylo ren says let the past die kill it if you have to Mm-hmm. And that is so obviously what Ryan Johnson is doing. He so could have just thought, "Well, I'll just try out the hits. I yeah. will, I will just, I will just make it." And Ryan Johnson would have made an amazing, entertaining popcorn Star Wars movie. He was also like slated to direct Force Awakens. He was on the shortlist of people they were going to approach, and he would have done something probably better than Force Awakens. But it would have been, you know, an enjoyable. Set the table and then let's see what other people can do with it. But he decided in this one, like, that he really doesn't care, you know, what you think about Star Wars. He loves Star Wars, obviously, but like, mm. you know, it, he doesn't care that you wanted to know who Snoke was. He doesn't care that. You know, wouldn't it have been better if Admiral Akbar would have like, um, uh, you know, piloted the ship through the, uh, you know, in the hyperspace sequence, and not this new character played by Laura Dern that we only met five minutes ago, and the Admiral Akbar, this fan favorite character, could get like his moment. It was like, fuck it, he's had his moment. Mm. He, he he just gets oh oh. By the way, that attack, Admiral Akbar's dead. That's yeah. his and like, and it just says to everyone like, you've just got to like let the past die. We are moving forward with new characters and new things, and and Ryan Johnson himself is going to be at the helm of a new trilogy um, with an entirely new setting, so you better get used to this feeling because, you know, Star Wars is not going to be survived. Uh, It's not going to survive, and trust me, Disney will milk it as far as they can, (laughs) but Star Wars will not survive um, if we just desperately cling on to what we think Star Wars should be, and that is why I... Felt so bummed out when i left the cinema is because i was still clinging on to what i thought star wars would be and it's made me realize that that is not
0: healthy Mm. i I think it also you you retweeted um someone making the joke that you know force awakens comes out gets torn to pieces by star wars fans for saying oh force awakens comes out it doesn't take many risks uh fans take it to pieces for not taking any risks last jedi comes out makes a lot of bold choices gets torn apart for making bold choices and it's like mm. if you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't you might as well do you might as well be the one who says okay not everyone's gonna like this this is going to go out to the widest possible audience it's gonna alienate some people unless it's the most mediocre cookie cutter thing imaginable that mm. no one could object to but no one could love and instead he's saying okay i'm just gonna make all the choices that are gonna anger people because that's how you that's how you get good art that's how you get a great movie is if people a bunch of people look at it and say "Mm, not sure and that's how it's gonna you know it's gonna spark discussion i think it's gonna spark more discussion for longer more substantive discussion than the force awakens did because the force awakens you know it's a hugely fun movie i don't want to disparage it for, for for not being kind of great but it's very much this movie that came out people liked it some people had gripes with it but it didn't kind of spark really passionate debates except debates, except in the the kind of the most kind of nitpicky parts of of fandom whereas i feel like this one is one that you can have real meaty arguments about
1: mm. and we can we can actually talk about stuff stuff other than speculation of where things will go Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, I can't even begin to speculate what... Like, I think J.J. Abrams, sort uh, read an article today that he is pitching his story for Nine to Bob Iger, the head of Disney, today. Mm-hmm. And I bet after seeing The Last Jedi, he must have been like, oh, fuck you, Ryan. <laughs> you've killed all the characters that I had. Like, you've, um, you've, you've kind of really painted me into a corner here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to do some serious shit to get out of this. But, like, yeah, it's it's um a really fun movie force awakens but like you say y- your conversations about it are how much you enjoyed it what kind of how it made you feel about star wars how excited it made you feel for star wars how in terms of filmmaking it was really an exercise in in jj abrams refreshing the palette and like pleasing people and like i said setting the table for the courses to come later on and in, in a way he did that he, he he reset the board and gave the following directors the best possible chance to to play around in a universe that he helped to define but yeah we've kind of had that shattered now and i think that is like just just for the
0: best hmm. so let's kind of dig into more specifics here i think i want to start with the stuff for you that didn't quite work, because even though like I I really love the movie, there there was stuff for me that kind of rang false, and it's the sort of stuff that I wonder when I see it again, and I will I'm I i i have already planned at least like to see it at least two more times over the next couple of weeks. Uh, once with my dad, who I've seen every Star Wars movie with, uh, except Revenge of the Sith, because it came out when I was still at uni and uh, didn't kind of make it work. Uh, and once because I need to go into the office one day uh, over the Christmas break and basically I'm going to get all my work done and then go to watch it again Mm -hmm. (laughs) because my work is near a couple of movie theatres. So there's there's kind of bits and pieces which I wonder if they'll work more on on further viewing. But what what was the stuff for you that at the time and also on reflection you think doesn't quite gel? Benicio
1: del Mm Totoro, the main offender, I think I had initially whilst I was watching the Canto Bite sequences, the, the Casino planet, the, the Monte Carlo in space planet, I didn't feel like it worked. I felt like it seemed a bit like it was cut from the prequels. It had a right. certain prequely energy to it. But then when you get to the end of the movie you realise you really realize why they went there.
0: And yeah, it's quite an intricately constructed plot in that regard, more so than you're used to from Star
1: Wars. Exactly, it's like fucking Larry David wrote it or something. The way they come fuck around. <laughs> In fact, if they'd have played the uh, the Curb music over that last sequence, that would have been pretty funny. But um, or if it had
0: started with a black title card and white writing and saying, "The gang, <laughs> the gang blows up a Death Star raided laser." <laughs> yeah, but it's
1: it's um, I I kind of felt like the Canto Bites stuff didn't work because I felt like. The two characters had a mission, which was to get aboard the the First Order ship and unjam the the whatever it was, the jammer that was being jammed. Um, I'm just thinking of Councilman Jam now. Um, <laughs> but then they seemed to have to go on another mission to mm-hmm. get something to go on that mission, and it just seemed like we were slogging, and I was like, why am I on this planet? I don't need to be on this planet. Why couldn't they have just come up with a more elegant way to get onto that ship? Hmm. And whilst I think there was some cool design stuff in the, in the Canto Bight, um sequences and the uh, aliens and stuff, I, I don't mean the kind of the big dog horses didn't work that well for me, but I kind of felt that that didn't work. Also it was set off by the brief appearance of Maz Kanata's character, the, the Lupita Nyong'o's character. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, what? what uh, is this contractually obliged to fit her in this film? Hmm. Um, and I was like, uh, okay, so that's the character from the last film that's now completely different, but also why is she in this? Um, that whole middle section, I felt, didn't work for me. It, it felt leaden and it felt like it was just trying to get through plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get to the end and you realise there's some really good character stuff in there, even though Benicio Del Toro's choices, acting choices, are... I think, incredibly poor. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, there's a great story about The Usual Suspects where he turned up on day one, and if you've ever read The Usual Suspects, and I'd recommend you do, because the script's widely available, but the character of Fenster is is just a boring character. He's just nothing. And on day one of The Usual Suspects, Benicio Del Toro said to the director, who we won't name, I can't remember who it was anyway, <laughs> um, and he just said, the character's not really interesting, I'm just going to try some of it, and can I hope... Like, just just like, I think we'll go with it. If you don't like it, we'll go with something else. And then he started doing Fenster, the mumbling uh, kind of, like, lounge lizard that no one can understand, but he's <laughs> an indelible part of that movie and its tone. And there's a great story that all the actors were like... Uh... On like the first day, they were like, we don't want to mess with Benicio Del Toro's like, acting process, but we can't understand a fucking thing he's saying. <laughs> and like the director was like, I think we should just give him a chance. And there we go. He's the kind of actor who will make an interesting choice to bring life to a character. And maybe I think he looked at the Last Jedi script and thought, well, there's not really much to this character. I'll give him a stutter. And right, yeah. it just kind of makes him kind of a bit like Porky Pig.
0: Yeah, and it's also, it's not like that pronounced a stutter. So Mm -hmm. you're like four scenes in before you realise that he has got a stutter.
1: Yeah, I thought Uh, I misheard it the first time. Yeah,
0: and I was like, oh, I guess that's that's kind of his tick, but there's not a huge amount more to him. And I think he forms like uh, Canto by is my least favourite part of the movie as well. Although I do like a lot of like I like Rose and Finn going off on an adventure on their own, Mm -hmm. Um, and I just purely from like a hey. When was the last time you saw a huge American blockbuster where two main characters in it are a black man and an Asian woman? And they're off, like, just holding the screen for the entirety of it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Pretty much never. That's something that has never happened on this scale, and that's amazing. But also, I like those characters a lot, and I really liked their chemistry and their interaction. But I think it also is... It kind of functions as more of a philosophical exploration. You know, Ryan Johnson is saying... You know, this war's been going on for however many decades and all these different players have cycled in and out. Who's providing all of these weapons? And it is kind of like a one of those things that like a fucking Kevin Smith monologue would be about. Mm. Of like, you know, like surely there's got to be some people who are making money off of this thing. And that's that's why he wants to explore with that, the idea that there are people who are selling weapons to both sides and getting immensely rich. And, you know, I kind of uh referred to the middle section as like the DSA approved eat the rich section of the movie where they just go to like a rich place and they just smash the place up Mm -hmm. which is fun which is fun and i enjoy that a lot but it it definitely is like this idea is what he wants to explore that he wants to add this kind of shade of gray to the menitian conflict between good and evil which is basically like saying there are people who are benefiting both sides who have no ideological concern with whether or not the resistance is in the right or the first order is in the right there are people like benicio del toro's character who are just like "Hmm, the only way to kind of be free is to not to join which is like an interesting you know those are adding a lot of nuance and shade to it but on a pure kind of entertainment plot level it's just not as interesting as the other stuff that's going on um, but it did confirm, at least, that uh, Louis Theroux's hot cousin has given sexual pleasure to Mas Kanata. So, at least we've got that going for us. Mm, I
1: thought... So, hang on, hang on. Was he the gambler?
0: Yeah, Justin Thoreau plays him in a Oh, I very... thought that was Noah Segan. No, Noah Segan plays one of the X-Wing fighters, I think. It's a very small role. Oh, but OK, because no, I was that's... waiting for his cameo, and I was like, yeah. I
1: could be him? But that's okay. one of
0: the nice things as well, just as someone who's followed ryan johnson's career for so long it's like super cool that he has got he has worked with noah segan i think all of his movies he has worked with his cinematographer in all of his movies in Mm -hmm. fact his cinematographer is like someone he worked with at film school yeah and it's great that they've gone from like making student movies together to making one of the biggest movies of all time together and i always like when like people have clearly got the people that they have come up with and they're like Hey, we're going to do amazing things together, and it turns out, yeah, <laughs> that totally happened. Yeah, I'll stick with this guy.
1: Yeah, I think I did feel like, and I don't know whether this because this is because, and we'll get to this when we talk about the how good the good parts of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether I felt this just because of how much Ray and Kylo Ren's characters and and uh, uh, Poe Dameron's characters were pushed forward, but I didn't mm-hmm. feel like Finn moved forward nearly as much. I felt like yeah. he got he got, a, he got a lot of good business scene to scene, but I don't feel like his character is pushed on all that much.
0: If anything, he kind of regresses a little bit in that he starts off by wanting to flee, and like mm. he has he has his reasons for it, you know. In that he says, you know, well oh, you know, I have this tracker if I need it to get away so that Ray can find you know uh, find us, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't arrive at just kind of the wreckage of the ship or whatever. But like it does kind of make him it does kind of take him back from being the quasi heroic figure he was at the end of the force awakens saying like oh he's still kind of only interested in himself mm. which i think makes sense for the movie that J- ryan johnson is making that he takes him to a point where he is willing to sacrifice his life and then realizing that actually that's a really kind of futile and kind of adolescent way of viewing the conflict they're involved with but it's like it does kind of it's out of step with the the trilogy as it's shaping up based on like what the first film was.
1: Mm. In terms of other things that I didn't think worked was um Donald Gleason's uh General Hux's <laughs> uh evolution or devolution as a character of just kind of sneering Nazi asshole to mm-hmm. comic relief. And yeah. that shift being not that smooth.
0: Yeah, I mean I really enjoyed Donald Gleason because I just I just find him to be such a funny, entertaining presence. But again, that was one of those ones where Ryan Johnson was clearly looking at the elements that he had available to him from The Force Awakens and kind of picking and choosing and saying, "Ah, this is kind of a character I would I'd much rather have him be rather than you know terrifying as he is in the first movie." or you know this kind of like zealot with kind of a a, a fire in his eyes to someone who could just get jerked around by Poe Dameron pretending that he's on kind of cool waiting with him Mm -hmm. or or like guy being like thrown around by Kylo Ren because he doesn't mean anything which uh, yeah it's kind of weird now, step but again it's one of those things where you think uh, if we view this as an individual movie that's not too wedded to the one that preceded it which is kind of what franchise filming filmmaking has tried to wean us off over the last couple of decades then it makes a little more sense but yeah it does it, it is a weird thing to kind of adjust to
1: mm. um i'm trying to think if there was too much else that i i mean i didn't hate it but it was <laughs> one of the things that really jarred for me but i i didn't think i would ever see luke skywalker uh, hate milking a camel <laughs> um i mean that was quite a surprise um mm-hmm. and i was like, oh okay but then like I, ryan johnson must have just been like oh okay well you, you'll accept like you know max rebo's band like mm-hmm. why not this and he's like okay let's just go with it like i think it's gonna be one of those things that when i revisit the film and i had the the friday off after the the movie came out and not, my plan was that like Obviously, it was going to be so awesome. I would go and see it again the next day, mm. um, and I felt when I left so deflated that I, you know, I thought I would, I'll save it for another time. But now I can't wait to get back and see it. Mm. Um, I think it's one of those things that you, when you come to expect it, it's really not going to like kind of stick out as much. And I think that is ultimately the, the stuff that doesn't work in 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 the Last Jedi is the stuff where Johnson pushes it mm-hmm. because when you push it so much, the stuff that works is going to stand out, but the stuff that doesn't work is also going to stand out to the same degree. And I think that when you have... When you put someone like Benicio Del Toro's character into Star Wars, and, like, that character... I mean, maybe in two years' time, I will eat my words, but that character is out of dramatic possibilities. Right. He He has served his plot function. And that character has just appeared... Essentially, as a plot point in this movie, and may never be seen again. You know, he might even get his own spin-off movie at this rate. Um, who knows? <laughs> but like that—that that felt to me like something that when you see it, when you have a character introduced in, in Star Wars movies, you think, well, they're going to be around. They're gonna they're gonna have value. They're gonna they're gonna uh, you know contribute something to this mythos, but. He was just kind of crowbarred in there for that one reason, and mm. tried to make him memorable by pushing it. So he's not just a just a dude they meet in a prison cell, and it, it doesn't work because it just sticks out like a sore thumb. The performance isn't in step with anything in the film. the 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 style of performance is out of step with. Um, I think just general acting. <laughs> it just it, <laughs> it, it, it just didn't didn't gel at all with the rest of the film. Whereas some of the the stuff that was good that worked. Like, totally makes sense. But you're just shocked because you, you're seeing it in a Star Wars movie.
0: Yeah, I think the thing with him, I kind of compare him to his performance in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, or maybe not even in whichever um, post credit scene he appeared in for one yeah, of the...
1: It, yeah, I think it was... Um, Thor 2, maybe? Yeah, or yeah, or Doctor Strange, maybe? No, possibly Yeah, not, it, not, One of those. Yeah.
0: Yeah, where he first appeared, and like he was just such a weirdo, mm-hmm. and you didn't, but you didn't really know what he was gonna be, and then when he actually showed up in the next one, like oh, you know, he's kind of boring, yeah. but like there was something just so fascinatingly odd about him, about putting him in a big movie and allowing him to do something strange like that, and this, like it was, it, there was, it was the exact opposite. He had, he looked like he should be in a Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. like everything about him aesthetically worked. And he kind of gave off kind of a, a swagger, and I like the idea of a character who's really not that fussed about anything that's going on. He's like, "Yeah, I'll help you out. Why not?" But and then kind of has a moment of way of grace when he gives Rose back her medallion because he's like, he demonstrated that he's one of the best conductors, and it was an integral part of the plot or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, everything else about him just felt fell really flat, and you wonder if that character worked better on the page or it really was just like he embodied a concept, an idea that Ryan Johnson wanted to explore but they never quite figured out a way of getting him to work as a character
1: mm, Yeah, and it's it just, that whole bit got caught up in kind of treacle in that like they went to Canto Bight and if they found that hacker and then carried on the, if, if, let's say, Justin Theroux's, uh character would have been the the person they were looking for and then they went and kind of did the thing with him like, what, why did they have to, like, fail so badly to be, then mm. be put in prison? And I get it that failure is a a theme of the movie. The movie is mm. about failure, explicitly so. Um, like, two or three of the characters actually say it in the movie. But then to be bailed out of that just by someone overhearing you in a prison cell, who mm. just happens to be a hacker who will just sort it out. And I know that Star Wars is littered with coincidence, and it's the will of the force or whatever, But it kind of just felt like a little bit sloppy writing.
0: Yeah, what I thought it was going to be, and I was very surprised when it turned out that wasn't the case at all, was that the Louis Theroux character was going to be like a red herring and that there was going to be a whole thing about how he had bested Del Toro's character in some game of chance and so he had gotten all of his stuff and he got thrown in prison. And it turned out that he was the guy they were looking for all along. He just happened, but Theroux happened to have his carnation on him. I thought, okay, there's going to be a reveal that he was the guy they wanted. And then it was like, oh no, it's just an entirely different master code breaker who happens to be in this place. And it is like one of the the worst in terms of co- sheer coincidence things that happens in the movie. Uh, and again, yeah, it, it kind of feels inelegantly kind of crammed in there. Uh, in a sequence that also kind of doesn't really work that well. Although my, my, one of my favourite lines from the movie did originate from the canto bite sequence which is when they're talking about you know the 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 rich people kind of abusing the poor and everything mm-hmm. and rose uh, refers to canto bite as this lousy beautiful town mm-hmm. which felt to me like uh, like part of the brick uh, screenplay kind of falling in and really kind of made me realize oh yeah this is like a, a Casablanca or a kind of a vaguely kind of film noir inflected part of this movie that's kind of just shown up and it's like oh that's kind of kind of neat and it was like a line that I really really liked Mm.
1: yeah yeah she's great in it as well
0: yeah Um, Kelly Marie
1: Tran Um, someone who I literally have no idea about at all I'm not sure what else she's been in and don't think much but uh, it's a tough ask for someone to come into a movie after the positive reception to a whole bunch of new characters um, who it was a risk that they would like, but, but people after The Force awakened loved Finn, loved Rey, and loved Kylo Ren, to so then add another new character into the mix with little or no experience in big movies, and she nailed it.
0: Yeah, she was absolutely the highlight of the movie in terms of like the new additions. I think that there were elements that Johnson deepened in a, in a way like he took. like I really liked what he did with the character of Poe, where mm-hmm. the first movie, he's actually not in it all that much like he casts a big shadow i think because of the gifs and the memes that have emerged as a result of people shipping him and and finn but like he's in the early parts of the movie and then he shows up in the middle and then he's like in a bit at the end but he's not a huge presence and Mm -hmm. i liked the fact that his purpose in this movie was for johnson to essentially interrogate the charismatic flyboy archetype by saying yeah, sure, he's, like, charismatic and he can fly a ship really well, but he also, like, takes stupid risks that gets a bunch of people killed. And there's going to be... doesn't matter how good you are behind the, the... in the cockpit of an X-Wing, if you result in just, like, terrible losses, there's going to be... there's going to be payback. And I liked the way in which it explored his arrogance or, you know, the whole Kylo and Ray relationship, which I think we'll, we'll get into in a moment... Um, you know the the fact that he took those characters and really explored them in different ways was kind of fascinating but she emerges you know in that first scene she's like crying because her sister has just died in that attack and she's you know guarding the escape pods and then she's like starstruck by Finn because he's a he's a resistance hero and everything and then you know you really get a sense of her emotional life in like a in a few incredibly well established scenes the fact that she she does really believe in the resistance and what they're fighting for but when she realizes that someone she respects and admires would take her sister's sacrifice so lightly by being like yeah i'm gonna run mm-hmm. uh you know she has no problem in just like stunning him and and moving off but then when he comes up with like a, a possible plan she's on board with it and, and you know she's a really compelling character
1: Mm. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see where she goes. She gets also that great line at the end, which could have been hackneyed in, in um, less capable hands from both in front and behind uh, the camera when she says, you know, we move forward not by killing what we hate, but saving what we love, mm. which is a sentiment that, you know, sounds slightly saccharine when you probably like kind of break it down too much, but they sell that moment pretty well given that one of the main characters was trying to commit suicide.
0: Yeah, and uh, it it was also that sentiment was what made me because like for like half a second I was kind of disappointed that they didn't kill Finn off. Not because I don't like the character of Finn; I think he's great. But just like in terms of you know the movie making bold steps, the idea of killing off this like really popular character in a in an act of sacrifice would have been like a really big choice. But then like her essentially saying the thesis statement of the movie and of mm-hmm. You know the this new trilogy of the importance of hope and the idea that you know death is like or, or hate is a zero sum game. Like you don't win; you just create a, a worse world for everyone. You have to have things worth fighting for and not just fighting against. You know, it's all these kind of really wonderful kind of nuanced points. And the fact that she you know makes it made me think. Okay, I'm perfectly happy with them not doing the like like killing thin. Would have been a bold choice, but it wouldn't necessarily have been the right choice. And I think her, you know, that their scene together afterwards, and her kind of giving him a little kiss, was just like a really sweet way of underpinning what what Johnson wanted to say. Mm.
1: And if we'd have lost Finn, we've already trimmed down the uh, the wage bill sufficiently in a <laughs> kind of almost Game of Thrones style clean sweep of the cast list. That I think losing Finn there would have felt like perhaps a step too far.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Mm. So uh, let's talk about the the stuff that we we really really liked. Like I said, I think one of the things that I, I loved about it was the entire dynamic between Kylo Ren and Rey, who uh, you know we saw them fighting in the the previous movie, and there was a real sense of of tension between them. But also because this is this is again you know people shipping characters, there has been a big push for people saying wanting some sort of relationship between kylo and rey which was then tempered by people thinking "Eh, maybe they're related let's not kind of (laughs) let's not kind of really push down the game of thrones corridor too much but then you know this movie obviously kind of nips that in the bud but you know i think the the whole thing where most of the movie they're communicating with each other psychically and they're having these kind of conversations and there's this kind of to and throw of you know he's conflicted about whether or not he did the right thing in killing his father, and you know if she, he is on the right path. She is trying to reach out to him, and what what I what it kind of uh, what I like about it is that, and this runs throughout the entirety of the movie, and even after they end up killing Snoke together, and you know they kind of had that great fight in Snoke's throne room. There's this sense that they both really believe in each other. Mm-hmm. Like they both have this really palpable sense that the other person is their their soulmate in whatever, you know, that means and that they need the other one to in some way be complete in their kind of journey through the world or, you know, in, in learning about the force or whatever. And what's really great about it is that they're both entirely cross purposes. You know, they both have this vision of the future where she sees him turning from the dark side to the light and he sees her you know joining him and what's great about that is that a it kind of points out the fact that the force is kind of easily manipulated and ambiguous but also is saying that you know these two these two things can be entirely true because they both believe them to be true
1: yeah and it's there's no easy fit to either because mm. in the original trilogy like luke could have just turned to the dark side but in the end he did redeem his father, wherein in this, the implications for going either way are just way too grand mm-hmm. uh, for the characters. And I think it, like what they did with the the kind of psychic connection, the kind of force uh, connection, I don't know what people are calling it, but I'm going to call it a force connection. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, as soon as it happened, I was like, huh? Uh, and then I was like, actually, uh, yeah, that's fine. This is a sci-fi movie. You can do this. And it, the first one, I was like, okay, That was weird. And then when they kept doing it, I was like, this is actually a very bold way of connecting two characters who are on the separate sides of the galaxy and divided by, you know, expanses of of kind of time and place. But this is actually some of the best scenes of the movie. Mm. Two characters who aren't even in the same room um, connecting in a way that I didn't think was possible. And I think that the performances are actually really, really good, and like Daisy Ridley, I think, is an actress who uh, is clearly very talented. But I, I think she would find it very easy to be pushed into the mold of you know, the kind of Kira Knightley roles that mm. you know, the, the the kind of people envisage her as limited as, as 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 kind of the British actress who can do. You might just see her turn up in a costume drama um, and get blown up in a Star Wars movie, um, but it, it's like she really really pushes beyond what she did in the first movie in, in such an interesting way and also Adam, we've always known Adam Driver as kind of an amazing interesting actor and some of the choices he makes in the first film are unlike anything we've seen in Star Wars movies before but to kind of bring in the audience's sympathy like we kind of really now are kind of rooting for the guy who killed mm. Anne Solo <laughs> is kind of tough but you're going to do it, do it. Because, I mean, it took, like, like three movies of Darth Vader being a space bastard and then just, like, for five minutes at the end of Return of the Jedi, all of a sudden he's a human being who is, you know, whatever, and he's redeemed. Whereas now we're getting Kylo Ren, we're seeing, a, like, a way more human face to evil. And, like, it's just so exciting to see, like that moral complexity in, in a movie that uses this kind of like fantastical science fiction setting as its backdrop. And I think the, the force connections between those two were a massive highlight for me. The other one was like, you know, Mark Hamill isn't particularly known as being a great actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, people would probably say he's a great voice actor. Amazing. So, like Yeah. He's incredible. A world renowned voice actor, but you know, his, his film career is, is kind of, you know, he's not really set the world alight. Obviously, he's Luke Skywalker, so he, you know, not many people can say that. He, you know, he's in a Samuel Fuller movie, but other than that, not really much. He's amazing in this this film. Mm. He takes Luke Skywalker to a place that is like, you know, really interesting. I expected him, and this is again, you're you know, subverting the expectations. Yeah, I expected okay, he'll be like a bit curmudgeonly at first, but then he'll, you know, see that. You know, there's an important job for him in the galaxy and he'll train Ray, and then off we go and he'll probably have some heroic death. Some of those things happen in that order, but the way in which we get to those is, you know, in places, really beautiful. The scene between him and R2, mm-hmm. where R2 plays the, the original video of Princess Leia, that's a really good scene. And, like, it's played, like, with the perfect emotional pitch.
0: Yeah, I have to admit, I got a little teary-eyed at that as soon, like, as soon as r2 like turned his head i thought i know exactly what he's gonna do because that's the perfect way to kind of play on luke's emotions but yeah the, the way in which the movie like it doesn't have the quote-unquote fan service moments that i think were were kind of plentiful in the force awakens and marred rogue one which mm-hmm. otherwise is kind of free of them but also does have like that bit with dr evergan where he's like why is this in the movie this doesn't need to be yeah. here there's no reason why these people are on this same planet that's about to explode. It's just, it's just, it's just a dumb, a dumb thing that they've dropped in for no good reason. But I think what it does do is it perfectly plays upon our emotional memory of the early movies. The two most notable are playing the image of uh, Princess Leia, which has added, obviously, has added resonance because we all know that Carrie Fisher has passed away and that this is her last the last time she's going to play the character. So seeing the young version of her in this kind of iconic moment from the original movie has such a power to it. But also, you know, when Luke, again, spoilers, <laughs> I hope people have, have paid attention to that first warning, when yeah. he die, when he dies, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's after having done this incredible, incredibly heroic thing, which presumably took so much energy out of him that he just expires, but he does it looking at two sons in the same way mm-hmm. They did as a young man, and you know that that is a wonderful evocation of the like the the first movies. Like you say, the first movies are fairly utilitarian in their visual language, but the image of Luke Skywalker standing looking at the two sons is like the most poetic image in the original stories. It's one of the most uh, Star Wars. It's one of the most poetic images in all of like American movies, and. Mm-hmm there's a lot of power to that and ryan johnson knows exactly how to use it to to great effect
1: yeah and then to actually redo it with the last shot of the movie with the the Mm. the stable boy with the uh, the broom in his hand looking up at the moons it's um it's giving us those things but not just remixed like uh, just a completely uh i saw someone saying rewired Mm. which is uh, a really great way of of like thinking about it that like it's not just presenting it to you in a different way; it's completely changing the way that it works.
0: Yeah, and and also that whole sequence, which I, I kind of thought. Sometimes when you're watching this move, these movies, not just Star Wars, but like mo- many movies, there'll be like you think, okay, that's the perfect point to end the movie on, which is in this instance is the the Falcon traveling through hyperspace. You think, okay, it's going to cut to written and directed by Ryan Johnson, and da 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 da, and then instead there's this other scene of the kids on Canto by you know seemingly retelling the story of what just happened uh or or just telling some other story about you know luke skywalker doing amazing things and then you know this this their overseer or whatever comes in and kind of tells them to get back to work and one of them walks off and uses the force to kind of pull the broom towards him which is a nice little touch and then uh you know he looks off into the the sun and there's this whole idea just they're throwing in it's like you know hope exists in the stories that we tell each other, you know, the stories that we tell over generations. And, you know, it's kind of acknowledging the 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 power that Star Wars has at this point. It is, even though it's a thing that exists in many people's lifetimes and didn't exist prior to 1977. It is essentially like a, a modern legend and, you know, it, it has a lot of power to it. And I really liked seeing that literalized in the movie in a scene that could have been, you know, I'm sure people could say you could cut it out and it wouldn't really hurt the movie but it's such a again it's such a nice way of ryan johnson saying okay i have an idea i want to illustrate and i'm going to just kind of like plop it into the movie
1: mm. and also it fairly explicitly says that up to this point in star wars the force um the, the kind of the story has been driven by this small related group of people and now it is out of their hands they're all dead they are all gone and this is now not their story this is the story of everyone and you don't have to be related to Anakin Skywalker to have the force you can you know we all fell in love with the the kind of the frustrated farm boy with with the kind of latent uh kind of force sensitive powers or whatever and we've just been introduced to another one um who and you know we may never see that kid again but just knowing that they're out there in that universe and the um that that's the case that we're not just going to have to keep moving through all these films with like ah yes this is uh, you know Luke Skywalker's cousin's dog walker <laughs> he just has the force um you know we are we we're, we're, like it reaffirms to us that it's not about what your surname is or who mm. you, who who you're related to it is a universal concept Which and it's a big relief like everyone like we say the the theories about Rey's uh, parentage have just been you know insane but like it was a mystery that J.J. Abrams set up um, probably cackling to himself knowing that he wouldn't have to be the one who paid it off Mm -hmm. and the best possible solution was that they're nobodies and if you like watching The Force Awakens again when they ask her who she is she says I'm no one Mm -hmm. and that's true she's no one she's the 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 parent the, the 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 kind of daughter of two drinkers who sold her for booze money and then just fucked off and left her in the hands of simon Pegg yeah it's and that is you know an incredible way of of revealing that because oh man yeah would it have been cool if like she like they found some way to make her obi-wan kenobi's granddaughter or something okay sure but then a that's dumb and b like seriously yeah you know what i mean it's like it's, yeah, it, it just would not work at all. And, like, the way they pull it off, just this conversation, that scene between her and Kylo Ren is my pretty much my favourite scene in the movie where, like, he tells her,
0: um, but she's always known. Mm. Um, they play it so beautifully. Yeah, I, I think also I want to talk about that scene because that's at the end of a very long sequence that, you know, involves Stoke dying. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about that because I think that, that whole way in which that is handled is so so brilliant because then it because again it ties into the whole thing about the force being unreliable and easily misinterpreted mm-hmm. because they've had this whole thing where snoke's been trying to torture ray to get information out of her and then he's like talking about all these things that are going to happen he says i see my apprentice grabbing the lightsaber and you know he holds up his lightsaber and at the same time you're seeing that ray's lightsaber which um, Snoke has put next to his, uh, next to his, uh, chair on his chair arm is slowly turning. And then, you know, he's saying, and I see, oh, he also is pointing his lightsaber at the true enemy or something. Mm -hmm. it's kind of like saying, oh man, you're misreading this. You have, this is a real (laughs) kind of monkey's paw situation where you, you're, you're getting, uh, you, you think you're getting what you want, but you're totally not. And then obviously he says, I see him activating it. And then, the lightsaber of course next to him turns on and chops him in half and when that happened and when ray then holds her hands out and the, the lightsaber goes into her hand and a big real kind of like samurai movie sword fight goes out between them and the praetorian guard my mm-hmm. my theater just erupted i know people like there's all this like talk about how Fans are reacting badly, and how, like, there's a disconnect between how critics liked it and how many fans liked it, according to Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is clearly like the Ghostbusters people downvoting it thing all over again, where it's like, no, like, it's just a small bunch of assholes ruining it for everyone. But Mm -hmm. you could, it it felt like such a crowd pleaser when I was watching it, and and that was the moment where you could really tell everyone wanted to just like stand up and start cheering. Mm, That fight is. Mm astonishingly
1: well choreographed mm-hmm. to look like it isn't choreographed yes um it's very very it feels very similar to the fight between um the the uh, ray and, and kylo ren in the force awakens which i think is the best lightsaber fight in all of star wars mm-hmm. and also features one of my favorite moments in all the star wars movies where um we get the close-up of of ray figuring out her focus Mm -hmm. she kind of closes her eyes which it turns out was Ava DuVernay's idea it was reshot and added in at the end but to to kind of move it up a notch to up the stakes and realize that to make a lightsaber fight more interesting you don't need to make it longer or more elaborate Mm -hmm. um just changing the setting and adding in um the weird energy in the room that just, well, we've just seen Snoke killed by someone who we wouldn't have expected to have killed Snoke. Um, At least
0: not at this point in the story.
1: Not at this point. I mean, I I was expecting, and you know, Captain Phasma as well, you know, I'm glad we saw more of her in this movie. I'm really glad they really padded that character out. Mm -hmm. But that's another thing. Yeah. To, to, to give us that fight with those stakes um, and deliver it in a aesthetic way that was just so, like kind of beautiful and expressionistic was not something I expected to see in that. I mean, I've obviously seen the stills of that room and stuff, but Mm -hmm. I thought it would just be like some kind of, you know, they'd just go in there and like have a big conversation or whatever. But to use that as the backdrop of the pivotal scene in the entire movie and maybe even trilogy, we don't know where it's going was a pretty bold choice.
0: And I really liked, like, like you say, the previous attempts to one-up the lightsaber fights, particularly during the, the prequels, was basically make them longer, more elaborate, people jumping around. But there's not a huge amount of like actual invention to the lightsaber fights past like the bit in Empire Strikes Back where Vader starts using the Force to throw things at Luke. Mm-hmm. like that was the the closest that the series really got to the idea of like okay let's try and jazz this up by adding new things this is like like those old samurai movies where they're thinking okay how do we or, or even like jackie chan movies where it's like okay what do we have in this room what can we do with these weapons to make it interesting so it's stuff like you know kylo uh, ray dropping her lightsaber to break the hold that the praetorian guard has on her so she can drop down and chop them in half from the leg or Ugh or um that was
1: that was like i don't want to sound like a nerd but that was fucking cool
0: that was great or is it kylo who like turns his lightsaber on next to the praetorian guards or maybe it's ray one of them turns on their lightsaber next to the face of a praetorian guard and then they turn it off and then you just see the scorch
1: it on yeah
0: and that's that stuff's great that's just so fun and so inventive and and clearly the case of ryan johnson you know you know great visual storyteller you know clearly someone who has who thinks deeply about the kind of stories he wants to tell he's also clearly someone who has watched star wars a lot and thought what would i do how mm. how how would i stage a, a star wars fight how would i use a lightsaber in a fun interesting way and being like oh man i get to do it now and the, the sense of fun of that sequence even though it you know there's also this emotional stuff of oh my god these two characters maybe they're on the same emotional wavelength and then obviously they have that discussion where it realises they're they're not and that he, uh, Kylo wants to rule the galaxy essentially and Rey wants none of that. She just wants to, you know, turn him away from the darkness and, you know, bring him back to being a good person again. Uh, you know, that, that there's all these emotions roiling in that scene, but there's just such a, such a sense of fun to that mm. whole bit. Yeah.
1: In terms of visuals as well, the, the idea of, of the... the, the the planet of crate the Mm -hmm. the salt planet which i i've been there i think we mentioned it on this show before Uh, i've been to that the uni salt desert which was flooded with rainwater, so it wasn't (laughs) white and there's no red salt underneath that's Uh a special effect guys it's hollywood magic but um that idea and like i know that ryan johnson has said that he was influenced by samurai movies but like kind of he mentioned name check some that i'd never heard of before but you you pretty solidly say that all the all the shots on crate of when they're about to duel and they're kind of grind like kind of steadying themselves with their feet and sliding along is is straight out of that playbook.
0: Yeah, and when Kylo like runs at Luke who has left his lightsaber down and like slashes through him, that is straight out of like the thing I remember. It's like from I think Yojimbo does that at the end mm-hmm. where where uh T- Toshiro Mifune like steps forward, and there's that always that moment in those movies where both combatants are kind of like standing stock still, and you're left to wonder which one of them is has been caught. And there, of mm. course, the joke is he hasn't caught anyone because Luke's not really there; he's just astral projecting himself across the universe to give the Resistance time, and he's completely played uh, to Kylo Ren for a fool. uh yeah. Which again, there's also yeah, sorry, which again was a moment that got a huge cheer in the theater. Yeah, uh, there was also
1: a kind of a, a real steady Rashomon vibe. Uh, yes, earlier in the movie where Luke is kind of trying to remember what actually did happen the night that he confronted uh, Kylo Ren, and mm. I thought that was really cool because I mean, obviously, Star Wars is a series that should we say wears its Japanese cinema influence on its sleeve. Yeah, um, Ryan Johnson kind of again takes it in a new
0: direction and does something interesting with it. Yeah, he's saying like, okay, you got a lot out of The Hidden Fortress, but there's a lot of other Kurosawa movies you could draw from hmm. as well. Even... Other
1: Japanese movies are available.
0: Yeah, and also someone pointed this out, and I, I didn't notice it when I was watching it, so I'm going to look, for, look out for it in the when I watch it the second time. There's a hint that Luke isn't really there when he moves his foot in preparing for the fight and that there's no salt moved, uh-huh. like that you don't see the, the red under the ground, but you do see it when Kylo Ren does it. I was kind of thinking when I was thinking about that. Look, oh, God, that's really fucking clever. <laughs> well, <laughs> I,
1: I figured that Luke wasn't there because his hair was the was, same as yeah, his <laughs> hair was the same as when that every, like, everyone in the scene had last seen him, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that's what he looked like. But the first thing was he just walks around the corner with a, like a backlight and meets Leia, and I was like, this feels weird. Mm-hmm. This feels off. This is either really awful or this is some kind of like trick. Mm -hmm. and it's an I'm not one of those people who enjoys being right when they guess things uh normally don't like to kind of pull myself out of the movie that much but that was the giveaway for me
0: yeah and I my thinking was initially oh he's just kind of communicating with her the way that Ray and and Kylo have been but then obviously C-3PO reacts to him Mm. I was like okay so he's definitely there you know did he drag the x-wing out of the water and you know dry it out with a hand dryer and just kind of like <laughs> f- fly it that's probably not right so i i figured there was something going on but i didn't i was i was happy to have been you know misled uh, and and have not twigged it which i really should have when literally every one of the at fires at him and nothing happens
1: <laughs> yeah i was like cuz you know that really would change what we knew about the force he didn't have to yeah. bother deflecting it with his with his lightsaber
0: Oh, there was. Uh, this is uh, in terms of like nerds ruining everything. When uh, I went to see the movie, I went to the bathroom afterwards because it's a long movie, and I really, I really needed to use the facilities. And as I was coming out, I heard one guy going, "But there's no precedent for that," and talking about like him astral projecting and then dying. And I really wanted to scream. It's a movie about space wizards. Yeah, it doesn't matter I that mean, there's no precedent. That is exactly what i was
1: saying in my long convoluted thing at the start (laughs) that like i felt odd about it because there was no precedent i mean i didn't like react in any way like that like loudly like a dick in a bathroom Mm -hmm. but like he is crystallizing what the problems that people are having for is like having with the movie is that like they're seeing stuff that's new, mm-hmm. um, and they are upset by it because they can't process it within the framework of the Star Wars, um, fandom that they, they live in.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it does kind of uh encapsulate that problem. And like, I'm sure that guy's fine, but like, there was just something about it that just really annoyed me because, like, the thing that I that's great about Star Wars and bad at the same time was that, you know, it's it's always had this very limited scope. It only focuses on this one family of characters and you see what you see of the broader world of Star Wars looks amazing, but you don't really get the chance to see it that much. And like, you don't really get to see how much, what the force can really do because people only use it for like four or five things in the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use it to help them in fights. They use it to cloud people's minds. They use it to jump so like but it's meant to be this all powerful thing that can do all these incredible stuff you know it's meant to be you know the the power of the death star is meant to be insignificant compared to the power of the force but like Mm -hmm. everything we've seen people do with the force is kind of really kind of like piddling and petty and so getting to see something amazing done with the force is like that's what i've always wanted to see i've always wanted to see someone in one of these movies do something, like, crazy that we've never seen done before. And, like, the first thing you hear someone say, the first response I hear someone else say about it is, like, no one's ever done that before. It's like, that's why it's great!
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, in Star Wars, no one... They don't use telekinesis in Star Wars. Mm. There's a Jedi mind trick, and there's kind of this kind of intense meditation focus, but you don't see anyone do anything until Empire Strikes Back, where Luke pulls his lightsaber out of the snow. Yeah, you know, it's like, did people come out of that saying, well, the precedent for
0: that? Yeah, I think, and also that, that uh, it's been interesting seeing people like draw, uh, bring out old reviews of The Empire Strikes back when it came out, because that was, you know, a fairly divisive movie as well. The one that now is considered to be either the best or at the very least the second best of them. You know, mm. at the time, people complained about it. You know, having a a, a complicated plot and it being particularly Vincent Canby. I've seen his reviews being his review of it being sent around, like comparing about the the plot being a little more convoluted. Uh, its attempt at being funny, which I think is a hilarious ac- accusation to throw at the Empire Strikes Back. You know these these are not new complaints for people to throw at Star Wars. Every time someone tries something new, people just kind of throw a shit fit. And sometimes, you know, it's warranted. You know, like the like Jar Jar Binks. But I think in this case, you know, it's they're they're making big choices because they want to this series to survive. It needs to evolve. It can't just be, hey, here's the like the five things you like about Star Wars. Here they are in a different order every every two years. You know, it needs to try and be something different. Uh, yeah. and I like that it's funny. It's you know, it's legitimately a funny movie. And it's no mm. more it's not especially more comedic than The Force Awakens, which had, you know, BBA flipping Finn off. You know, there's <laughs> lots of there's lots of jokes and there's jokes in the original, like, you know, the original Star Wars it's its key moment when Luke is turning off his targeting computer, has Alec Guinness like saying, Luke, trust me and it's like, that's, that's funny. <laughs> it's funny that this uh, old kind of dead wizard is just saying like, Hey, you know, come on. Where have I steered you wrong? Mm,
1: Yeah. You only knew me for about 12 hours. (laughs) But where have I steered you wrong? But yeah, yeah, I mean, some of the humour doesn't quite land. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, should I say, pun intended, feels a little forced in places. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that does land is really funny. And I found out today, this is something I didn't know and I didn't really think about, but someone says i got a bad feeling about this in every movie. Yes. Um, Sometimes more than once. Uh, Did you notice who said it in this? No. No, because was... no one does, but someone does. Ah. B- BB-8 says it, in BB-8 language. <laughs> and uh, it's in the opening scene, mm-hmm. and they're approaching the Dreadnought, and uh, Fodem- uh, that's my Instagram name, Poe, Damagren, uh, Poe Dameron says something to BB-8 about their chances, and BB-8 says something back, and uh, Poe Dameron says something like, uh, I only want happy beeps, buddy. <laughs> um, cause that's because he says, i got a real bad feeling about this and i think that that is there you go there there is um the exciting thing about the future of star wars in microcosm yeah you're taking something and not just remixing it you're doing it so no one understands it <laughs> and uh but it's still cool
0: yeah so anything else that you kind of really want to to get to before we wrap up um. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to talk about, but I kind of feel we need to like focus so this isn't a four-hour-long episode. <laughs> yeah, people have got stuff to do. <laughs> They've got to watch the Last Jedi Jedi for a second or third time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um, I'm I'm really bummed that we're not going to see Leia's movie because yeah. I think the way they planned it was the 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 Force Awakens was Han's movie, this one was Luke's movie, and then the next one was going to be Leia's movie. But at the same time. It's kind of thrilling to know that we've just got uh, C3PO and R2D2 and uh, Chewbacca left of the original trilogy cast mm. and all of those are beginning to outstay their usefulness. Yeah. Um C3PO got a little bit of business but really couldn't could not have been in the movie. R2D2 had to have the moment with Luke. Chewie is kind of there to Oh yeah, the Porgs. How did you find them?
0: I liked them. They were fun. Yeah. They were cute. They were very adorable. I enjoyed them guilting Chewbacca into not eating the charred corpse of one of their own. Uh yeah. and I liked that by the end of the movie he apparently it was so uh, enamored of them that he just had them all dotted around the Falcon even though I'm pretty sure that means the Falcon's going to stink to high heaven very soon.
1: Yeah, it's not hygienic. But no. yeah, that that that's that's something like the that we are in a fresh slate type scenario for then obviously the most tragic of, of circumstances mm-hmm. but it, it's exciting to see where it's going i am now less excited about jja Abrams being at the the, the driver's seat because mm-hmm. i really hope he he kind of doesn't just think well i need to close this out in a crowd pleasing way yeah. and i i kind of hope that he, he 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 i don't think he's capable of taking the risks that johnson took and I, I i think it would be too much to do that as well um but i hope that he he kind of uh, doesn't fumble the ball that he's been passed.
0: Yeah, and I think the thing that has me hopeful about it is that one of the reasons that J.J. J. Abrams cited for wanting to do Nine after they kicked Trevorrow to the curb was that he was he had been so excited by Johnson's script for mm-hmm. The Last Jedi when it was being put together that he felt like really good that he couldn't direct it himself, like yeah. he was so excited about the choices that it was making, and so mm-hmm. you would hope that he's kind of going in with that spirit and that maybe Johnson, you know, has given him some ideas. Or Because I know that Johnson at one point was meant to be writing 8 and 9. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think he is in a better position to kind of come up with an interesting ending to the story than Johnson was coming off of The Force Awakens, if only because, like, Johnson had... To follow one of the most successful movies of all time, and he had all of these pieces set, and so he had the temptation, like like we were saying, you know, to either go the kind of the boring safe route, or to do the go the way that had higher risks but also higher rewards. Mm-hmm. And now J.J. Abrams basically has no choice but to kind of take at least some risks in the because you know he's been left in a fairly. Uncertain and precarious place in the way the story has been shaken out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but we should also just be thankful that Colin Truro is not doing it.
0: Oh, yeah. And that hopefully they're going to chuck out his script because he's still currently credited as a writer, but I think they probably will just want to start anew.
1: Well, I think if that story about JJ pitching the story to Bob Iger is true, then I imagine that it will be a complete fresh start.
0: Hmm that that in itself is quite nice to think that this movie this trilogy hasn't been kind of planned to death in the way that like the prequel trilogy where Lucas had it all essentially kind of planned out in advance and then was just kind of plan kind of going through it by rote by the end of mm-hmm. it uh, except I think probably Jar Jar was probably going to be a bigger part of the second and third movies if everyone in the world hadn't been like please no yeah, <laughs> no, no more of this guy i like the fact that it's growing organically and that they clearly when they're making the force awakens the way that this movie shapes out wasn't what they had in mind because of the sheer number of mystery boxes they had like out there and they've even said that you know um uh, uh, abrams had in mind who ray's parents were but he didn't tell ryan johnson and the best thing is that ryan johnson actually came to the same conclusion that the best answer was that they were no one but the fact that he didn't tell jj J. abrams didn't tell him that uh, but he still reached that conclusion it gives a sense of like this thing is being allowed to go in whatever direction it will go in and you know you've got some smart people involved mm. yeah
1: oh maybe jj J. abrams will be like the start of the next film will be like no ray's parents were <laughs> obi-wan kenobi and mara jade or you know whatever <laughs> that's a that's a deep cut from the mm-hmm. <laughs> expanded universe for you guys out there yeah. um but yeah i yeah I'm really excited to see the movie again um, despite thinking that I never wanted to see it again as (laughs) soon as I stepped out of the theatre but um, yeah I am super stoked to see it again and perhaps see if what uh, irked me, irked me irks me again and see if what I thought was amazing still dazzles
0: Mm, me too so we end this episode as we end every episode with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends in which we talk about a piece of pop culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you may enjoy as well Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week?
1: Uh, Well, I kind of mentioned it earlier, um, but if you want to uh, see Mark Hamill do something that isn't Luke Skywalker, then I thoroughly recommend the Samuel Fuller war movie, The Big Red One, Mm. um, which is uh, widely available in a reconstructed format because it was, much like many of Sam Fuller's films, uh, kind of butchered and kind of changed and generally uh, unsatisfactorily treated, but he um it was reconstructed from his kind of memo notes uh, he died way before this this got realized and then the sound was remixed and um it got like a new like color transfer and everything and it looks great it's a great movie um and if you want to see Mark Hamill do something different he's not the main character but he plays a character griff there's a character called griff in every samuel fuller movie <laughs> but they're not connected it's the samuel fuller ext- like uh, extended universe um <laughs> cinematic universe um but yeah he uh he's pretty good lee marvin's the main guy um, it's about kind of like a uh, like the 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 one uh, one company I think they're called, and their their logo is a big red one, hence the the name of the uh, the movie. But um, yeah, it's about their kind of exploits during World War Two, and a lot of it drawn from Samuel Fuller's own experiences because he was famously a rifleman uh, during World War Two, um, and the the film's super amazing and um, kind of like um the antithesis of the last jedi in many ways um but uh yeah great movie um with a pretty good uh, mark hamill performance probably the best thing he did outside of the star wars movies um now that's a low bar to clear but <laughs> um oh not including his voice work i'll say that now um but yeah i'm gonna recommend that um so yeah watch that it's really good it's widely available on dvd so look it up
0: Cool. I'm going to recommend a movie from earlier this year, which uh, I don't think we've had chance to talk about, but uh, has a Last Jedi connection because it features Adam Driver. And it's the Steven Soderbergh movie, Lucky Logan Lucky. Damn it, I said the title wrong. <laughs> it's Logan... Lucky Logan Lucky. Lucky Logan Lucky. That's what you would have it as a double bill if you watch the movie Lucky with it as well. No, but Logan...
1: Also, Logan Lucky. Lucky Logan Lucky number 11.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a hell of a quadruple bill that's um, like a doug's love movie game <laughs> oh man you that would be such a great way of short circuiting that movie that that <laughs> game if you just kept going yeah. logan lucky logan lucky, <laughs> logan, lucky. um oh but no logan lucky which is the most recent steven soderbergh movie in kind of a low rent uh ocean's 11 movie and i say that in the best possible way because whereas those movies are kind of like glossy and all about robbing casinos and things like that this is a movie about uh, a trio of siblings played by adam driver uh channing tatum and riley keogh who decide that they're going to rob a uh they're going to rob a nascar arena and you know there's there's all these sort of reasons for it you know it's, it's got a very intricate plot much like oceans 11 there's lots of hidden motives for why they're doing this these things uh, it came out earlier in the year and it was kind of it wasn't ignored it like film twitter was very excited about it because Soderbergh had come out of retirement which wasn't really retirement because he directed episode every episode of a tv series in like the four years he has been away and he'd been recutting like of the lost ark and things like that but uh... It was a movie that, that didn't really catch on with, with audiences, but it's now on DVD and Blu-ray and it's a just a hugely enjoyable movie. It's it's really fun to just kind of sit and luxuriate in because you've got these really kind of funny characters in this great West Virginia uh, milieu. It's got this really interesting subtext about, you know, the kind of the the, the shit upon underclass trying to get something back from rich and you know it's got these this trio of really likable actors uh drivers is really funny in it as a as the kind of brother who went away to fight and came back without an arm and and his his prosthetic arm kind of factors into the plot in a lot of really interesting ways Riley Keo is great in it she's she's one of my favorite uh younger actresses kind of coming up and there's just like lots of really fun great well realized side characters as well most notably daniel craig playing the character of joe bang a explosive expert who they need to break out of prison in order to take part in the in the movie and it's for for someone who's kind of become a little bored of daniel craig because of him just playing bond and variations on bond for a while it's a real pleasure seeing him get to let loose with this really eccentric role and in a in a movie that is you know just like hugely enjoyable one of the most fun movies of the year Uh, And I really recommend it. That's Logan Lucky. Mm. Thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Prayer FM, Stitcher, all the usual places. Also write us a review uh, if you're so kind. You know, it's it's the Christmas season uh, and it always helps us get new listeners. Uh, Recommend us to your friends, you know, all the usual good stuff. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with our end of year episode. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And Merry Christmas from me. Yeah, we're saying Merry Christmas again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Not not being forced to say Happy Holidays by all the SJWs. No. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone.